Welcome to Exposed. Real people, real stories, uncensored. You'll hear it all, as well as secrets from your host, Samantha X. I'm sure most of you know Gary Jublin. He was one of the country's top homicide detectives with a career spanning over 34 years. He's a father of two and a grandfather, best-selling author and host of his hugely successful podcast, I Catch Killers. And here he is today on Exposed. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. We met about a year ago when when I was on your podcast, I Catch Killers, yeah. which intrigued me because it intrigued me why you wanted to interview me because I'm not a killer. But... <laughs> Yet. Well, yeah. But we've all got it in us, I suppose, haven't we? I think we have got it in you. Well, I'm not sure if you've got it uh, got it in you, the bear Definitely. killer. But um, no, I, I thought uh, I'd seen you, seen you around and uh, I had uh, read your book and I thought that would make an interesting guest on uh, I Catch Killers. Now, I Catch Killers, the name is based on the fact that I was a homicide detective Hence the name. It wasn't real creative. It was fairly simple. But uh, I'm interested in people's uh, people's stories, and you had a uh, very interesting story. And it is the work that you did is very uh, closely aligned with the work that I did. Mm. And it sounds strange, but there's definitely an overlap. Mm. And uh, I've, I've got to got to say, it was a very popular uh, popular episode, and gave a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. A lot well, of people laughed. It, it, yeah. Did they really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love the way you introduced me as like, you know, be prepared, keep your minds open, everybody. And I was like, well, hang on, I'm not a serial killer. You, you brought that up and I checked myself when I was introducing yeah. you because I think of all the people I've had on the podcast, why am I being so cautious here? But I suppose that's just the sensitivity of the, the subject matter. And, yep, uh, sex. Yeah, sex. I know. So You've sen- mentioned sex, like this person kills that person, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> Be careful here because today we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> yeah. yeah, be careful of the high class escort. <laughs> so how has it been? So you're the um, you're a homicide detective for 34 years or you're in the cops for 34 years? In the years? cops for 34 years and probably investigating homicide for about 25 years. Mm. And now a media star. I don't know about a star, mm. but uh, I'm, I am I think I'm, I'm fortunate that I, I found a, a second career after I left the police and uh, I'm enjoying it. It's got its challenges. and mm-hmm. uh, But it's a career where you can put your passion into mm-hmm. and that's what I, I found in policing. So I'm enjoying the sort of transition. Mm. What prompted the podcast? So was it someone else's idea or? We're looking for something for me to do. Um, I, I've left the police and, and in the circumstances, a controversial way I left the police um, and with a criminal record, uh, the obvious transition from uh, being a criminal investigator that I was would be to go into private investigation, security, that type of thing. You didn't want to do that? Well, I didn't have the option because uh, the courts deemed that uh, I was so bad that uh, I should have a criminal record. And so I, you've got a criminal record now? Yeah. And I, so I couldn't apply for a security license and uh, media has always interested me. It, it plays a part in the world that I operated in, the, in the policing world. Everyone's interested in uh, true crime. It seemed to be a fascination. I was approached by a number of people to various different projects in the, in the media and uh, I settled on uh, doing a podcast because what I liked about the podcast and it's with uh, Sunday uh, Sunday Telegraph and some writing was that I had control on mm-hmm. what I was doing. When I first started the I Catch Killers podcast, I think there was a perception it was going to be a sort of 
sharp, you know, this is a retired detective hitting hitting his guests with some hard hitting questions. But I find more interest and I, I think I get more information having these long form conversations and uh, letting people tell their stories. And what I really enjoyed was I had the opportunity also to show that the world of crime is not black and white. And I think I've surprised a lot of people that thought it might be, you know, this is just going to be the hard-ass the homicide detective talking to other cops about, yeah, we locked up this bad guy and that bad guy. But I found a lot of interest in speaking not only to them, but also the other side of the coin, the bad people, the people we had been locking up, had committed some serious crimes. We've had murderers and escapees, armed robbers, all sorts of people on the, on the podcast and allowing the public to hear their side of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's given, I, I'm hoping it gives people a different different uh, perspective. And, you know, I, I use you as an example of coming on and talking about an industry that, uh, you know, as a sex worker that uh, people haven't readily um, understood mm-hmm. or they got these perceptions. But let's find out who the people are behind the, behind those perceptions. No, you were very gentle with me, so thank you. Who's, who's been, apart from me, of course, who's your most interesting guest? Apart from me. <laughs> I just start at number one, so we're looking at uh, looking at number two. Uh, look, this is a cop out in answering answering mm-hmm. this question, but it's like saying who's your favourite favourite kid, and uh, I'll I'll <laughs> tell my daughter it's my son if she's misbehaved or vice versa. But look, the police that we've had on, uh, I'm getting police on that have inspired me, mm-hmm. and so I enjoy speaking to them. I, I like a cop talking to a cop, but we speak a, a similar language. I've been really impressed by some of the bad guys that we've we've had on that have uh, turned their life around, like stories of redemption. But I've got to say, the people that really sort of blow me away and, and humble me are the victims of crimes, families of people that have been lost in uh, to murders and and different things, and the way they find resilience and overcoming that adversity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that sort of, uh, yeah, I can't pick one. Like it, it's a, it's a favourite one. I'll say one because I think it's pretty funny. I, I had a bloke on uh, Jack Beaumont is his name. He's a French spy and uh, retired uh, fighter pilot. It was like talking to James Bond. Oh, stop <laughs> it. Really? And, and, Did he have uh, one of those watches? Yeah, uh, look, uh, he's he's a very nice bloke and we, we've kept in, uh, kept in touch. He was interesting, a really interesting story in a world that, uh, you know, international espionage that you don't normally get to uh, get to speak. But I count myself very lucky. Like the people I'm speaking to are just blowing me away with, um, yeah, their stories. And I'm speaking to some people that I never thought I'd get an opportunity. But yeah, I'm a, I had Tom Carroll, um, two times world surfing champion. Uh, on the podcast, and I had to point out that I had a picture of him on my bedroom wall growing up. You're a big up. surfer, weren't you? Yeah. Do you still yeah. surf? Not, not very well. So I won't, uh, I won't talk myself up. I uh, <laughs> do the best I can. Mm. I, I do get out there when I can. But, uh, but having someone like someone like him on is, uh, yeah, it's great. And you've, uh, we were just talking earlier. You're in the back in the prisons. Yeah, I'm. I'm doing a project at the moment that ha- having a look into uh, the way uh, prisons operate, and uh, it's early days yet, so we haven't formed any views. But uh, I've had an interesting, interesting experience recently where uh, I've been given access or full access to a maximum security prison, and having a look around. And as you can imagine, like, um, I'm not the most popular. Well, you've put some inside, haven't you? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not. I'm not the most. Pop- I'm not welcoming you with open arms. No, I mm. think that's fair to say. But 
I, I've been fortunate in some that have given me the time to sit down and have a conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I won't say I've bought uh, credi- uh, credibility to myself because I've been speaking to, um, you know, friends of theirs, former inmates, but I think I've shown in the past three years that I haven't got this um, tunnel vision as a police officer. I've got an open mind and I'm interested in talking to uh, bad guys, what got them there. And if you hear some of their stories mm. on why they ended up in prison, yeah, we've all got to take a step back. Like I I, I was lucky. I, I grew up, I had family support and all that. And I speak to some people and I think if I was treated that way, I'd uh, I'd end up in prison. So that's an interesting, mm. uh, interesting uh, time that I'm having. Do you think people are born evil? Some people are born evil? I think there's, I think there's a combination, uh, nurture, uh, nature or nurture. Right. That uh, that debate. Um, I did some research with uh, a, um, uh, uh, what was his name, Doctor Fallon from uh, uh, um, the US about um, whether people are born bad or whether they're uh, it's uh, circumstances. Yeah. I spoke to a neuroscientist, uh, Dr. James Fallon from California, and he had some very interesting insight into uh, the makeup of a psychopath. There's a combination that in those early years when the, uh, if a person can be born with a predisposition to go bad, uh, as in something in their brain, but it's the environment in which they're, they're brought so up. family. Family in those early formative years, the crucial years, I think he said around three, uh, around three years of age. And he likened it because he had a brain scan himself and he had the characteristics of a psychopath because he was given access to brain scans over in right. America. And as a test for, yeah, these are all the worst killers in America, this is their scan of their brain. And will they have the same brain? There's a portion of the brain that comes up in a, a PET scan similar to the people that uh, would be considered psychopaths. He did a PET scan of his brain and it had that same pattern. And he reasoned that because he was surrounded by love and brought up in a nurturing environment, that's the thing that stopped him from going bad. So in answer, long-winded, rambling answer to a question, I think it's a combination, combination of, both. of both. What are the traits of a psychopath? You know, because we all joke that we're dating psychopaths, but what are the actual traits? Yeah, if whenever, you are dating a psychopath. Whenever it goes wrong, it wasn't my fault. They're <laughs> a, a psychopath. psychopath. I think that psychopaths aren't out there as, as much as you think, but psychopaths can also function normally in, in society. society. And they say, you know, some of the, some business, um, you know, successful was business. Wasn't there psychopaths in the yeah, workplace? Would be considered, uh, you know, psychopaths if, mm. if you looked at it, but they've channeled their, their um, interests there. To me, what a psychopath is, if I'm saying it, and this is very much in layman's terms, they don't have a conscience. Right. Uh, they, they do evil things. They can, they can function perhaps by mimicking how other people like are functioning. A like a, a narcissist, but at a, at a higher level where, oh, you're meant to show emotion or show emotion. I don't think I've dealt with many psychopaths in my time. I, I put some killers away that I, I would suggest that uh, are psychopathic tendencies in their, their nature, but uh, you don't know. That's mm. that's the thing. That's I, I don't think they always stand out like people think. People think that, and this is my experience, that uh, people think a bad human being will always always stand out. I've locked up people that uh, for all intents and purposes, they, they seem like uh, normal human beings mm. and then they've done horrific things. 
Do you have or have you had compassion for any of the killers that you've locked up? Yeah, and I, I was talking to people in in jail about this, and it was corrective services um, people uh, having a, a conversation, and they said, "Look, sometimes murderers get a bad rap, and that sounds that sounds strange in, in saying it, but sometimes there's circumstances why someone kills, and it, it could be a crime of passion, making no excuse for it, uh, made a mistake or an act of revenge." But it doesn't necessarily mean their whole life is dysfunctional. They've done something. So ter- good people can do bad things. Good people can do bad things, mm. definitely. I, I'm comfortable in, in saying that. And I, um, bad people do good things too. And that's there's a real yin-yang um, side of it. I think in uh, yeah, everyone wants to write people off as that person's bad, therefore they can't do any good. That's not been my experience. Mm. Gary, I read your book, I Catch Killers, which I really, really loved. And what I what I took away from that is that you have a lot of compassion and admiration for victims' families. Yeah. What did they teach you? Particularly the Browville murders. Or the just Browville yeah. murders? Yeah. Yeah, yeah but the Browville yeah. murders with um three ch- three Aboriginal children yeah. that went missing, Colleen, Evelyn and Clinton. That really affected you, that case, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, that case and uh, for people, and I, I hope people have heard about it. If they haven't heard about it, they should look it up, the Browville murders. So it was um, Evelyn Greenup, uh, Clinton Speedy and Colleen Walker. Um Three Aboriginal children all living in the same street uh, in Barrable, which is a town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Over a period of uh, five and a half months, all three were murdered. Their bodies or clothing that they were, uh, well, Colleen was wearing at the time of her disappearance were found discarded along the Congarini Road, which is about five kilometres on the outskirts of town. That was in 1990-91. And... I've got to say the the response to it from police was inadequate at the time, and this is me not just you know ha- having a go. This has been acknowledged in the parliamentary inquiry that we we could have done it better. I became involved in 1996, I think it was, so five years after mm-hmm. there was a person charged and acquitted, so no one had been um, charged with one of the murders and uh, acquitted at trial. The community protested. The Aboriginal community uh, protested. No one uh, that no one cares. And and yeah, when they I didn't really did they? Well, they didn't, Amanda. And that's the thing. When I took over um, over the investigation, I went up there and uh, met with the community. I went up there with. They didn't them. like you at first. No, I, I went up there with yeah. You carry a bit of swagger. Right? Hold it. I'm a big city homicide detective, and uh, yeah, I'm going to come up and solve these murders. And uh, I got growled at pretty heavily from uh, from the elders and the community. And uh, well, they that, didn't trust you. They they didn't trust me. And and one in particular, Auntie Elaine Elaine Walker, who sadly uh, departed uh, a couple of years ago. When she first saw me, I went to speak to her and uh, she absolutely gave it to me. She said, you're a white man, you're a cop, why would I trust you? What are you doing here? And uh, we became really close friends before before she uh, she passed away. And what the families taught me was, first of all, what a racist country Australia is. And I, I know we all like to sit here and say, oh, no, it's not. We're all, all fair go. I say bullshit. <laughs> um, there is racism in there and racism played a part in uh, these matters not being solved. So I've worked with the family, not just myself, um, uh, Jerry Bowden, Jason Evers, uh, Bianca Commoner all members of the police, we've worked with the families for the past uh, you know, 25 years or so, uh, trying to get them justice. We haven't got them justice, but at least I think the families understand that people care. Mm. We 
uh, had a um, parliamentary inquiry mm-hmm. on the basis of marching on parliament. And I, yep. I actually marched with the families on four occasions down Macquarie Street to New South Wales Parliament, which I don't think endeared me to um, uh, to the New South Wales well, police hierarchy. They might think you're getting too involved. Yeah, and you know what? I I reckon when people say that, that's what lazy people. Oh, he cares too much. He's too passionate, and uh, it's it's like used as a, an insult. How do you get too involved in the murder of three kids? Like, really? Um, it's just a cop out when uh, when people say that. But people did say that mm-hmm. uh, and said it said it to me quite regularly. And I like to think that I've got passion with perspective. So if I'm, I, I don't just bang my head against a brick wall for no reason. There's sufficient evidence, I believe, that the person could be charged and convicted, and we've gone through all sorts of things. We've had legislation change, trying to get justice, and this point, there, there's no justice. When uh, I was sort of forced into retirement in the police, um, I had to leave leave that case, and I haven't been able to be involved in it from an official point of view, but I still speak to the families regularly. And uh, just last week, I went to um, a funeral uh, in the community, one of the elders, a, a key witness in the matter, Patricia Staddams, um, lovely lady and a real larger than life type uh, type character. She was a real character, and I went to uh, went to that uh, the funeral, and it was attended by hundreds of people. And uh, the other police, the, the couple of the police that I worked on, uh, also attended, and it was quite moving. And uh, the family. Actually, and uh, I, uh, yeah, I get emotional even thinking about it because it sort of blew me away. I couldn't talk because you know I'm a tough guy and I can't yeah. cry. Um, at the funeral, just after the funeral, the family said we've got something that we want to present to you, and uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, mothers of uh, or the aunties of the uh, murdered children's daughter painted a uh, indigenous painting, and. So much time had gone into it. There were circles that represented all the years oh. I had in the police. Um, there was a fi- a figurines representing the three kids. There was another part there representing the police working on it. Even a figure representing William Tyrrell and uh, Mark Levison. These are all matters yeah, that uh, I've, I've worked on. And they went to that trouble and uh, and presented it to me as, uh, you know, thanks for, you know, uh, fighting with that us because that's what emotional. we do. I couldn't talk for a minute. Oh. I just sort of. <laughs> did you cry? No, I did not cry. I don't cry. I'm a tough guy. <laughs> I bet you I can make you cry. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's th- beautiful. Th- that's credit like to you, that. though, Gary. So, but they changed me in so many ways. And I think that they marked. Not just changed me in policing, but Mark changed me as a as a human being. That uh, let's not judge people because they didn't judge people, and they got stuffed over so many times on on different things, but mm. they always hung in there and and resilient and uh, just really opened my eyes to things. So yeah, I, I thank them. They they thank me, and I'm embarrassed because they've given me just as much as they say I've given them. Is there a sense of guilt that the the killer's still out there and that you couldn't finish the case or? Yeah. Frustration, yeah. like frustration in terms of guilt. No, because I've offered that I'll, I'll work on at any time, as in any of the cases I was on when I was removed from uh, from investigative duties. I've offered to the police I'll work on it. Anyone that wants assistance, I'm more than happy happy to help. That offer hasn't been taken up, uh, mm-hmm. sadly. So it's not guilt; it's frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, 
anger for the families in that they deserve better um, and they they haven't got it. But the thing that I'm I'm proud of is that they realise that uh, people do care, and the more that we talk about it, that uh, to prevent this type of thing happening before uh, 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 happening again, I should say is important. Mm. With the William Tyrrell um, case, yep. and it's actually, um, oddly enough, his 12th birthday today, yeah. um, and his killer's still out there. If it, okay, yeah. Can we say killer? Was, is he def- defined as uh, murdered? Look, or? he's disappeared, and okay. most likely that uh, he, he's deceased. So uh, whoever's responsible for it, because I think it's safe to say that there was human intervention. So whoever's responsible for William's uh, disappearance has not been called to justice. That must be very frustrating for you. Because you worked on that case for years. I I worked on it for four years. I took it over five months after uh, William's disappearance and I worked on it uh, for four years and that uh, the work I was doing on that led to my demise in in the police. Frustrating, yes. Um, and I'm, I'm just choosing my choosing my words. I don't know if frustration uh, says it enough. Well, the only person who's been charged in that case is you. If, <laughs> and that, and the irony is you've been charged. So, somewhat ironic, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, yeah, at least they got one uh, one uh, <laughs> yeah. victory there. Uh, the sad part is that we still haven't got answers for what happened to William. We've got William's foster parents. We've got William's biological parents. They're desperate for answers, as you would understand, mm. trying to find out what's happened. The distraction with what happened to me, I, I think, and the uh, clearly the infighting within the police must be cause them concern where the focus should just be on finding out what, what happened to William. I, yeah, we could do sit here for eight hours and I'll, I'll plead my innocence on what I got uh, charged for. But uh, yeah, that that's done and dusted. When it's all said and done, I recorded a conversation on the telephone while speaking to a person about the William Tyrrell uh, yeah. disappearance whilst there were listening devices in, in the house. Anyway, that's a separate story. The fact that I was not allowed to do a handover um, to the people taking over the investigation uh, was extremely frustrating. I've said this publicly and I stand by that. And anyone that says I was allowed to do the handover, I call a liar. And uh, I wasn't allowed to do a handover for the investigation. I ran the investigation for four years. I had a lot of information I think could be worthwhile passing on and I I wasn't given the opportunity to pass it on. Um, What's played out in the media in the past, uh, let's say, 18 months where it hit the media again big time with senior police saying there's only one suspect and they're doing a search. Um, I haven't seen that happen before in uh, uh, investigations where there's only one suspect. The way they announced the search, it looked like a fait accompli that uh, something was going to be found. Um at this point in time, now probably two years down the track, nothing nothing has been forthcoming. We've still got the inquest that hasn't come down with its findings. When I left the police in 2019, I think it was around 2019, I think the findings were going to be handed down in 2020. Here we are in 2023. We need answers. Mm. And I, it just, it, it does make me sad. And I, I yeah, am I angry? I am, but I, I temper that with the fact that it just makes me sad what these families are go- going through and uh, not knowing what happened to their three-year-old child. Does it hang with me, this job? Yep. I, I can honestly say, hand on heart, I don't think there's uh, a day where it's not raised um, uh, to me uh, to speak about. Um, 
indifferent, in uh, it's, it's just be something innocent. Anyone walking along the street, if I s- stop and talk, they'll ask what's happened. So I think there's a real interest in the community to find out what's happened. I think it's time that uh, we need to put up or shut up mm-hmm. and uh, and have that inquest, have that uh, finding uh, findings handed uh, down and uh, see where it takes us there. But and I'm not saying anyone on in the New South Wales Police don't want answers. I don't think there's anyone other than the person responsible that doesn't want this solved. So let's hope they will get justice and, and bring not closure but some peace mm-hmm. to the families. And the fact that one person has been sort of hung out to dry by the media um, and it appears to be you know encouraged by the police I think is disgraceful. There's no evidence. Well, there's no evidence that we know of that's been presented. What amazed me about that case is, and we spoke about this earlier, is how many paedophiles live so close together in that small country town. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, and this is my experience with homicide investigation, that uh, when you do start to investigate something, the very nature of homicide is that it's a lot of attention to detail. You've got to have a look at everyone. Everyone's a, a person of interest, potentially, and it does tend to uncover things like that. So, yeah, that's one country town. It's probably a lot of other Mm. country towns. And, yeah, pedophiles, I'm talking separate to um, William's matter here because there's, we, we can't say definitively it's a pedophile that's involved in uh, in William's disappearance. But I have done uh, of, of recent times some uh, work in a podcast series called uh, Predatory about pedophiles. And uh, it's a real. It's a crime that doesn't uh, fully understand. People don't fully understand the ramifications. I, I dare say the amount of people that are in prison because they've been sexually assaulted as kids um, would be. You'd be astounded. And then gone on to be pedophiles. Uh, not no, not not necessarily following on to be pedophiles, but have disrupted their life and made their life go off off track. Oh, I see. Um, Got it. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to. It's ruined people's yeah, lives. Yeah. Yeah. I've yep. spoken to. Uh, spoken to some. Uh, you know gangsters, tough guys, real hard guys. And when you break it down, where did this start from? Uh, I was sexually assaulted when I was Mm. a kid. And it's such a manipulative crime. And there is no excuse for it. No excuse whatsoever. Kids are innocent and someone preying on it for their their own sexual gratification Mm. is disgraceful. So- Parents listening to this, what are the characteristics of paedophiles? How can you spot one? Because I always think it's the person that looks like a paedophile, you know, the bottle yeah. top glasses. And, but, but quite often that's not the case. No, and we've got to get past this uh, stranger danger type situation where people, that, that's the way they promote it, you know, don't talk to a stranger and all that. The sad reality with um, uh, predators or, or, or pedophiles who are predators, that's why I call them predators, they ingratiate themselves into the family. Someone that you know. It's quite often mm-hmm. going to be a family member or someone that's in a trusted position. What do you, what do you look out for? I, I think the best advice I, I could give is that if a child comes to you with concerns or you know, the child might be happy to go to a sporting event or a function and then all of a sudden decides, not, I, I don't want to go there, there might be something something there to look at. Trust your instincts. And if it is brought to your attention, one thing that frustrated me, and I've seen it not just in my um, professional life as a police officer, but with people I know, is there's a reluctance when uh, for people to come forward because it's such a confronting uh, confronting subject that people don't want to talk about it. And that's what uh, we're trying to do with uh, predatory podcasts, get people talking about it. You know, it's almost like the taboo, let's not mention it. And quite often when someone has been charged, everyone goes, 
oh, yeah, I thought that person was a bit. Uh, they didn't do anything about it. Yeah, why, why didn't they do anything mm. about it? So I think we've all got a responsibility that if, um, yeah, if you have a concern, follow it up, just check it out. And just with a little bit of due diligence, we don't have to live in fear all the time. But if there's something that's a, um, you know, if you, you trust your instincts to a degree, if something doesn't seem right, explore it. Mm-hmm. And if you become aware of it, report it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, just going back to your childhood, Gary, I know oh, that you're <laughs> all that time ago. Yeah. Your father played a massive part in in your childhood and was one of the reasons you became a cop. Yeah. Tell, tell, tell me about that. Look, or tell me about your dad. Okay. My, my father was a, uh, a hard man. I, I would think that would be fair, fair to say. He... Uh, Again, it all comes back with childhood. He lost his uh, mother, I think, when he was eight years old. So he, he was brought up in a by his father in a, a house with his, his brothers and uh, an older sister. Um, so there was tough love was the thing, but uh, I needed it. <laughs> like I, uh, so I did you crave discipline. I won't say I crave discipline, but I, I think it was good that I got disciplined because I, I think I, I had the potential to go go off track. And uh, I did. I became very cunning how to avoid uh, detection from uh, from my father. You know, first one caught smoking, drinking, mm-hmm. every, everything. But um, I, I think I needed him. And I, I make this observation. I'm no expert on, on parenthood by any means. And I, I better not say that because my kids all yeah. – but <laughs> – you need. He was a friend, but he force uh, first and foremost he was a father. So yeah, the friendship came, but he was a father, and he'd pull me in the line. And uh, I used to hate him at times. And I think, like all teenagers, you go through that you know, that period of time where you you don't get on. But uh, he could see the warning signs. People I was hanging around with or things. I thought he was being overly strict. But when I I look back, I I think no, it was. I'm glad he did mm. that. And he he made me tough. Now whether he he made me tough because he he knew the type of personality I had or what path I was going to take. But he gave me the confidence to stand up for what I think is right. And uh, it's not always the easiest path, but, yeah, that's it, what I do. So I, I think he's a good influence. He, he's passed away a, a number of years ago and it was sad, but, uh, yeah, got good good memories uh, memories from it. And your friend Anthony, um, an Aboriginal kid that yeah. was one of your best mates growing up, he, you said that he was another reason you went into the cops. Yeah, he uh, he he was um, – it sort of gave me, I, I think, an understanding. He was my best friend growing up when you're, ki- when you're kids, you know, earliest childhood memories, five, six or whatever, and he was a, an adopted uh, Aboriginal boy that lived across the road and we became good mates. And uh, he uh, – at one point in time, he can't turn, he was a couple of years older than me, so I think he would have been about 11 or 12. I was probably eight, and he came to my house and said, uh, I'm running running away and uh, do you want to come with me? And Did you it, think about it? I thought about it and I thought, oh, no, it's pretty warm in here <laughs> or, or whatever. I, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't see him for years after, after that. He, uh, he did run away and uh, he left the family that uh, he had, had adopted him. And uh, next time I heard he was in a, a boy's home, juvenile uh, detention centre. And then fast forward years later, I get a call from a police station I'm working at and they've said, oh, do you know um, there's a person in the cells that he's misbehaving, he was assaulting someone or, or, or something, and he's asked for you. And uh, 
I, yeah, I, I knew who he was, obviously, and uh, Anthony, and they described me. I said, yeah, yeah, and they said, could you come in? And it's probably been about 10, 15, maybe even more years since since I've seen him. And he was in the cells carrying on, and they said, do you want to go in? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go in. And I, I went in the cells, and I remember they opened the cells, and I sat on the, the, the cell floor with him. And the moment I saw him, we were like little kids again. Yeah, we're just yeah. laughing at the situation that we're in. And uh, that that was uh, that was a, a nice, uh, nice moment. Did you get him out? I, I got him out. Um, and then I was thinking that, uh, you know, uh, I had a young family at that stage, kids, and I, I thought oh, I'd come back and I, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll look after you. And then I thought, oh, look, I just don't know. He's lived a different life path. So it's interesting how lives can go yeah, off in you different, went, you went opposite ways, different you? directions. Mm. I, th- I think that sort of an example like that gives me an understanding that, yeah, let's not judge people. It's just sort of it's a sliding door moments it's where you're like, sliding door could have gone. I, I could have been the one in the in yeah, the cells. Yeah. So. And Gary, why homicide? Why did you choose homicide? Because that's pretty grueling. Yeah, it's um when I joined the police, I and that's the beauty of police, and I, I'm a big promoter of uh, you know if you want an interesting career, police is there because there's so many different options. There was um yeah, general duties policing, which full respect to the people that make careers out of that because they really are the sharp end the of streets. policing. Yeah. They're on the streets every day. They don't know what their next job, and I, I've got so much respect for the, mm. the people that do the general duties work. I went tactical policing. I, I, I looked at that at the time with the riot squad, the TRG and the state uh, support, uh, state protection support unit, which is the um, resolving high risk sieges and that, the, the tactical SWAT type teams. So I did that in close personal protection, all of which was great. Like I love the tactical, the tactical side of um, policing, the Best two weeks I ever had in the police was the Sydney Olympics because I was looking after dignitaries and heads of state, front row seats in all all the events. But uh, that's another story in itself. But criminal investigation. When I got involved in criminal investigation, it just I thought this is this is for me. And uh, you could throw as much effort into it as as you had. And it was funny, you get your first sort of cases that you investigate, you throw everything into it and you feel like you're 10 foot tall because you lock someone up for a break and enter. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, look, I've done this and a, a, a detective. Yes. But I got some exposure to uh, a homicide and I thought, and the people that uh, were there, they were like mythical creatures when they turned up, a homicide detective turned they up just at the police in, station. Don't they? And you'd be looking going, that's an actual homicide. We'd be yeah. talking behind their back. I was fortunate enough to work on a, a couple of cases and uh, the skill level they had and uh, that I had so much to learn and uh, I was fortunate to get there and pretty well stayed there for the majority of my career. But for rewards, I don't think you can get in, in policing, and this is my, my person, personal view, you can't get a greater reward than being um, held accountable or the person responsible for finding out mm. for what happened Did to someone when they've been it? It- murdered. Sorry, so do you want us to finish that again? No, no, that's it's just such an honour. But desensitised. Um, Did it desensitise you, Gary? Seeing all those, seeing death so much, and and you know some of it in your book was pretty uh, confronting. Yeah, it, it you get conditioned to it. I mm-hmm. I think I. I you don't have time when you get called to a murder. People, um, you know, whether you're running the team or whatever level you are, if you're turning up at a murder scene as a homicide detective, there's a thousand things to do. So you don't have much 
chance to take in the emotion of the whole thing. And when I'd go in and I'd see a body in a horrendous, you know, circumstances or whatever, I tried not to put a life into that. I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got to do the crime scene. I've got to speak to this person, that person. You've got plenty to do. The time it catches up with you, sometimes when you get home and you think, oh, that that was horrible what I've just seen. I only had a few times in my um, career where I thought I want out. Like I, I just, it's too much. And it's when you're on call, it could just be a sequence of on call. So you're going from one murder to another, or you might be running a big investigation and something else is happening and it sort of feels overwhelming. And you get home and uh, the phone rings and you know you're going to be called out to something else. And I just sort of I don't want to go face that darkness again. Mm. And uh, sometimes it, it gets to you. I was fortunate, like I had a, a pretty quick bounce back, like I, I had that feeling for a fleeting moment and then uh, throw myself in the shower, slap myself across the face and get out there and get amongst it again. Mm. And I, I, I had a good bounce back and uh, I think I was fortunate. Um, some people it's, uh, find it uh, find it harder, but uh, yeah, I, I manage. I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that I didn't take sick leave in the time I was in the in the cops and uh, turned up each day and uh, was ready for it. Mm. But yeah. So 34 years as a cop, how's your mental health now? <laughs> it's fine. Why you ask? Why is everyone asking how's my mental health? Um, I think it, cha- it changes you as a person. Yeah, how did it change I, I, you, I, well, that light and darkness that you talk about? It's It changed me in that uh, I, I'm – a harder person, I think, than I would be if I didn't join the cops. Mm. But in the same regards, it's given me an area that I could channel my energy into. Now, whether that's aggression, passion or whatever, it's something that's something you, you've always got work to do as a homicide detective. But uh, your mental health and uh, I i think everyone's got these mental health issues and that. I, I can only talk for myself, so I can't, uh, can't talk, about, uh, talk about others. This is how I tried to balance it out. I, I'd work hard. I would train hard. I always, I always made. I'd call it my happy place at work, and uh, trying to get to the gym each day and, and do that, and that helped me out a great deal. I did uh, meditation. That Chagong, I've spoken to you about that, and uh, yoga type training. So the hard and martial arts, boxing, and all that. And what I've found that that worked for me. So. What I'm saying here, and I'm not the most Zen-like person in the world, but I'm probably more Zen by the fact probably that- Probably more Zen than me. Well, and I'm perhaps, not a homicide detective. Yeah, per- perhaps, because I, I do- You don't not, even drink coffee. No, I don't drink coffee. I've never drunk coffee and uh, I, I drink green tea and that sort of- uh, Please tell me you ate donuts on the job. We, when we're in major crime, they did throw, uh, there was one when we we're at uh, North Region Major Crime, every Wednesday we had a meeting and we'd get a box of donuts. <laughs> I think we were laughing at ourselves, but they were, they were nice. So yeah, it's about the way that you, um, yeah, de-stress. I didn't have, uh, when I say I didn't have a lot of friends in the police, I've got lots of friends, uh, in the police, but I didn't socialize with police. And I think that was very healthy for me mm-hmm. because. You talk about the job the whole time. And you got uh, old friends that can just take the piss out of you, so you don't take yourself yeah, too yeah. too important. And because yeah. you, you're, yeah, when you're running a job, you're in charge. I do this, do that, and then you go hang out with your old friends, and they just yeah you know, treat you like the idiot exactly. that you actually are. Gary, you've been married twice. Yep. Okay, that's yeah. that's surprises. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to get married again? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, he's turned me down. Um, okay, Gary, you've been married twice. 
And a friend of mine who's a cop said that once you join the force, you get a divorce. And with you, it happened twice. Can you be yeah. a good cop and a good husband? You can You can be. You can be. And uh, look, I, a lot of people can hide behind that, uh, oh, I was a cop, that's why I got divorced. It's almost like the cliche of yep. uh, you know, the divorce detectives. I would joke sometimes too, you can't really become a detective until you're divorced. But I, <laughs> I, and I, I, this is funny and it's probably wrong and I'm half joking when I'm saying this, but sometimes uh, people, when their private life was in disarray, they were better detectives because they had nothing else to do. <laughs> so they'd be- Nowhere else to sleep. Why, why, why are you here? Well, I've got nothing to go yeah. home to. Or, or well, that. that happened to you, didn't you? You had to it, live in a did, bed sit or did. something. It, I, I lived in some terrible places that, um, you know, that money, because <laughs> I didn't have have any money. Yeah. So you, you're literally living in, uh, in a, you're in living a room. You're living and breathing your job. Living and breathing the job. And so there is a way that you can sort of channel that. But I, I don't blame um, policing for my failed marriages. I, I think I, I see some people and, uh, yeah, Good luck to them. They've had a marriage. They've grown together, and they've gone their separate ways. Back, they've they've kept their relationship together and been great police. I don't think it goes hand in hand, but it is a bit of a cliche. And uh, it is a bit of a cliche. I, I know the crooks were in more trouble when my relationship was bad because <laughs> I had nowhere to go, so I <laughs> just turn up at the work. and you'd be yeah. in a bad mood. Yeah. Um, Okay, I, you, I totally related when you when there's that line in the book saying you looked at happy people and you couldn't understand how they did it, how happy people have relationships or yeah. how people have happy relationships. And as a former sex worker, I, I feel the same way. You yeah. know, the thing that shocks me now is happy relationships. Yeah. Do you still think that? I look, I, I haven't haven't changed too much since I've, I've left the police. I look, and it's normally when I'm looking there with uh, with envy or whatever, and I, I'm seeing people that, geez, that would be good uh, when I'm not in a relationship or my relationship's gone gone sour. I, I think good luck to them, uh, and people channel their energy in the in the different things. I make I've got no regrets about the way I've lived my life. There is a couple of things that you know I probably could have done differently, but you live and Would learn. Would have, could have, shoulda. Yeah, and I think that's if you haven't got that attitude, it's probably you know you're gonna trip over more. I like to think I've become more informed about the person I want to be the older older I get, but uh, relationships are a tricky thing. <laughs> Oh, tell me about it. Yeah. That's why I used to have like snapshots of intimacy and with clients. It's the only intimacy I could handle. And and I think we've talked about this before is yeah. that, you know, I can dissociate. And I'm yeah. sure as a cop, you can dissociate yeah. too. And the tricky thing is then learning not to dissociate. And it, It's hard. And I, I think, um, yeah, when we've all been, well, most of us have been fortunate enough to be in love at some stage and it's all very exciting and great. And then- oh, that didn't work out. And then the next time I'm in love again, this is a real thing and then that doesn't work out. You perhaps become a little bit scarred and cynical. Do you cynical. still believe in love? I, not as much as I, I used to. I always thought the next thing uh, around the corner, this must be the right right thing. But then I'm, I'm sort of worldly enough or wise enough now to know it, it doesn't always work out. But in saying that, I, I don't have regrets with the relationships I've had. I, I look back and it was all learning and there was obviously some uh, good times involved in it. And uh, so no, no regrets. Mm. Okay. With um, being a detective, there I can imagine lots of thrills and excitement and highs. And, and how do you get that now? Because I know sportsmen suffer when they leave. I mean, I miss the thrills of my old job and I struggle with that normality. How do you get the same high? Do you get the same highs? 
I I can't I can't find the high I'd have when I'm about to uh, crack a murder. And when I say I, whenever I'm talking I in homicide, it's always a team uh, team thing. But that high you get when you you've cracked cracked a case and you feel like you've got some justice for for someone. But having said that, it takes a toll. Like to get that high, that's a long battle to get there. And so my life's on me is a little bit softer. I'm not getting these late night phone calls and then going to make life and death do you miss them? decisions. Sometimes I do, but uh, I'm happy with my life at the moment because I'm now working in the media. I'm doing something that I'm finding quite challenging. Like it's not, it does not come natural to me. It's something that, uh, okay, I'm, I'm feeling the pressure of what I'm doing. So that that's sort of stimulating me. Um, but when I sit at home and I see there's been a murder on TV or whatever on the news, I think, God, I'd like to be involved, yeah. involved in that. So I miss that aspect of it. I, yeah. I miss the thrill of the chase. And as a homicide detective, that's what it was. You, you were like a, a hunter. I, I miss that. Does anything still shock you? No, not really. Like uh, I'm pretty much um, nothing would surprise me. I know humans are capable of anything. Um I've seen some crazy stuff. Uh, What's the most shocking thing that you've seen? Oh, just the brutality and the evilness of what people can do to each other. That's sort of so. I don't. I don't have any expectation that uh, that couldn't happen because any anything can happen. Um, so I, I'm not shocked by many things at the at this stage of my life. I, I've seen things, and that that's probably what being a homicide detective uh, does to you to a degree. What's been the most shocking crime that you've worked on? Again, I, I choose carefully because when you're investigating homicide, every crime that someone's life's been taken is is shocking. Um, three kids murdered um, in a small country town 30 years ago and there's still no justice. That That's shocking. Um, the impact that's had not just on the families but the community and the trust in the police and the justice system, that, that shouldn't shouldn't happen. A three-year-old kid dressed in a Spider-Man suit disappears from a small country town and we can't find out what's happened. And no body. And no body, no answers, and it seems to be total confusion. That that shouldn't happen. Um, but each case shocks me and I, I just see the impact that it, that it has on uh, families when someone's life taken. I might also make the point because we, we well, I mentioned William in the description there, and one of the uh, Colleen Walker, whose body's never been found, the pain that causes families when they don't have answers. I can't um, imagine the pain that would cause. No, I, I, I can't either. I, I can't imagine the that type of pain. And I, I remember uh, William's foster care um, parents saying to me, "When should they um, pack up William's room? Can you imagine even considering that?" What did you and say? I. I fumbled with my answers and it was basically I, I couldn't direct them one way or the other. I, I said, when I know something that you need to know, I, I will, will let you know. But it just broke my heart that they were, you know, had to even consider consider that. They described how they, uh, and this is before I was on the investigation, they drove up to Kendall with a baby seat in the car and then Two weeks later, after everything had been done and, and they had to get back to uh, Sydney, they had to drive back in that car with the baby seat 
empty. Can you just- It's those small details, isn't it? It's those small details that when it's said and it gives you a sort of chill up the spine, doesn't it? You mm. think, uh, yeah, how, how, how do you deal with, uh, deal with that? So the pain that families have not getting answers- the pain that um, Barrival had was that people didn't care too, and I think that's an important thing. That was uh, wasn't only the pain that they've had three children disappear from uh, the all living in the one street, but people no didn't care. Well, Gary, I only knew about it because you wrote about it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm a, I'm an ex journalist, and I hadn't really heard of well, those and that, cases. And that's that is a, that is a shame shame about it that uh, people. Um, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's there's a disconnect. They can't relate. Well, that's happened on a Aboriginal mission that wouldn't impact on us. It's almost like this disconnect. They're a marginalised group of people. No one really cares. I've been at pains to tell their story because that's one thing Arnie Elaine said to me that uh, yeah, justice comes in many forms, and she was she was always dropping things to me like that. And she would quite often say justice comes in many forms. It started to make me wonder, is justice about making sure their story has been told and mm. not forgotten, um, whether that uh, brings justice. But, yeah, you see all the heartaches. But, you know, flip side, the positives in that um, how strong the families are. And, mm-hmm. yeah, when they thank me for working on cases, I, I've got to remind them how much they've given me. They've they've nourished me in, in ways and changed me in ways they couldn't even imagine. Taught you and a lot, I So I, I think that's fortunate. Like I leave the police and I, I didn't get um, well, I didn't get a brass band send-off. I got a charge sheet. <laughs> criminal, <laughs> you got a criminal record out a, of cr- it. A criminal record, but not even a, a notice of service, like a little plaque yeah. saying you, you worked here. Mm. But then, like I get that uh, painting from uh, mm-hmm. the Barrival uh, families a short time ago, and just the acknowledgement when I when I was going to court with my charges, um, it's what should have been the worst moment in my life turned out to be one of the. Did some of the victims' families come and support you? Yeah, yeah. And that was like I'm walking up into court, and I'm th- and this was a low point in life, and it. Almost, well, not almost. It became one of my proudest moments in life because there were the families of uh, the victims there, there supporting me, and I think that's well, amazing. That that brings a tear to my eye, actually. Yeah, well, I, it doesn't because I, I <laughs> I'm a tough guy. I don't cry. Um, but yeah, mm. th- things like that. So I, I look back and I, I just think I've been fortunate. Mm. I've been fortunate to meet uh, meet these people. I've been fortunate also to get a. a uh, another career in, you know, just cramming That's another. It's a great career uh, that you've got now. N- another career, and uh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and uh, I'm I'm trying to make a difference. And I, people have asked me, what do you do now? And I'm trying to create environments where people can tell stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? and uh, yeah, so I'm I'm enjoying uh, enjoying that aspect as well. In your 34 years mm-hmm. as being a cop, you achieved a lot. Why do you think you're so polarizing at the police still? Why 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 does some of them have a problem with you? Oh. You'd have you'd have to ask them that that question why they uh, they don't like me. I the way I look, I I acknowledge that yeah. If I was managing myself, I'd be a difficult person to manage. But when you're investigating homicides, and that that was a sort of cornerstone of my career, it is important. So you can't just forget something because someone said no, you can't do that. So I I would challenge decisions. Sometimes, not all the time. I accept the the umpire's decision when because it's uh, yeah you're reporting up, so I accept that. But if I didn't agree with it, I would say that. Now, opinionated people make enemies. I 
how I've been treated by the police, I, I was shocked by it. I, I did not think that there could be- They, they could turned be, on you. Uh, they could turn on me in the way that they did. Um, though, having said that, the people I respect in the police, the people that I consider, yeah, Good police have shown me shown me respect, and uh, I I can be walking down the street, and you know, police that I haven't even met will uh, offer shake my hand and uh, and say hello. That means a lot to me. If I've upset some uh, people that I don't respect and they don't like me, this message to them: I don't really care. <laughs> like I know what I've done, and I also know what you've done, and uh, so think on that when uh, you know the people that don't like me, and. Yeah, I'm proud of what I did in the police, and I, I'm choosing choosing my words words carefully carefully here because I don't want to come across as you know someone that just won't acknowledge did anything wrong. I know I, I was difficult to supervise, but I was doing things for the right reason. I, I think I'd, I'd like to be thought of like that. In regards to, I, I'm surprised by the what appears to be the animosity between the police and myself because I still love the police and I speak. Would very, you go back? I wouldn't go back, not for a thousand reasons. One of which I've got a criminal record, so I wouldn't be accepted back. Could I could apply? Could I change yeah. the name? Apply? Start all over again? Maybe they won't. I'm sure you're not a forger document. <laughs> yeah, maybe they wouldn't wouldn't notice. The reason I wouldn't go back is because I couldn't trust the people I was working with. There were some people that I worked with, and I, I thought what they did. Um, was disgraceful. And this is not talking about oh, the thin blue line, we've all got to stick together and cover up this. It was just, it was shameful that uh, I, I wouldn't trust them. Uh, they're sneaks. Uh, I wouldn't trust what they're doing behind my back. Mm. And uh, so I wouldn't have the confidence to go out there, do the hard work, lead the tough investigations. You'd be a target anyway. Yeah. Mm. It'd be be pretty funny, but I wouldn't yeah. mind walking back into police headquarters <laughs> just for a day. Oh, the shocks on their faces. Yeah. Um, okay, there's one question I wanted to ask you. How do you get a criminal to confess without using the phone book? Yeah, well, <laughs> we don't have phone books now. <laughs> Your iPhone. Yeah, yeah. And that would leave a mark. Yeah. No, there, there was that old, and it was a, it was a joke and uh, different things. Although I'm sure it's happened if you uh, hit a prisoner, use a phone book because it, it doesn't bruise. That, is that true? Uh, when I read that, I thought, is that actually true? Who can I test that out on? It's. I, <laughs> I, I can honestly say I've never hit someone with a phone book, so I can't yeah. uh, can't say. But that was yeah, that was what goes on in the interview room. I'll let you in on a secret with, with the interview room is that a lot of people carry guilt for what they've done. And quite often I get people that would confess to crimes, I think because they wanted to unburden themselves with, with I that guilt. I can understand that, yeah. Now, think of the worst thing you've done, secret thing that you've done, and you carry that guilt until you tell your best friend or you tell someone in your family, oh, look, I've, I've done this and, yeah, you unburden yourself. Secrets make you sick. They do. You, you hold on to that and when you talk with your, with your mate, well, it's not that bad. You, you're stuffed up. You acknowledge that, that type of thing. It, it makes you feel better. In the interview room, quite often I think people want to unburden themselves because, you know, killing someone, and I, I talk homicide, must be the worst thing you could hold in terms of a, a secret. And then they're sitting there. I'd go into the interview room and make sure I didn't go in there with any judgment. So they would be in a, a I won't say safe place because it's a very intimidating. And I've, I've sat opposite, yeah, you know, been grilled in the uh, in the interview room. It's intimidating, 
but making sure that there's no judgment there and quite often the confession uh, confession flow flows on from there you can approach it um, more analytically and I'd, I'd be asking you questions I'd have all the evidence here and it's hard to lie when someone's prepared and if someone's done all the all the research and that's when I went into an interview room and I was taught this so this is a lineage that's been passed mm-hmm. on to mm-hmm. me I didn't invent this mm-hmm. but make sure you know knowledge is power in the interview room get your head and I would be so stressed before I'd go into an interview room because I'd be trying to cram and get as much information as I could and knowing that something you know this is a crucial moment in the investigation don't stuff it up I'd, I'd go splash water on my face, take a couple of deep breaths and walk in there and get ready for it and then bang, I'm into it. And you've got to be attuned to body language, what the person's saying. You've got all this going around in your head. You've got to ask the right question at the right time, the pregnant pause at the right time. There's so many things and you come out of the interview room and you're absolutely exhausted. Yeah. But you've got to... You're exhausted because you've got given a bit of yourself in that uh, yeah. in that room and... That that worked for me. I uh, yeah, I had some uh, successes with confessions. I had some great failures with um, you know trying to get uh, get confessions. And it is frustrating when you got someone in there that you know that's done it, and you can't prove it, and you've just got to got to move on. But uh, I interview the interview rooms were my favourite place in policing. I loved the interview room. I, I thought I I, I liked the ex- excitement, chasing people and pulling guns and all that. That mm-hmm. that was fun, but the interest, the the thing that I really enjoyed was being in the interview room because that was a matching. You, you're testing your your skills and wit and intellect and everything that you've got against a person. That's the only thing you've got to offer them is, um, yeah, you tell me the truth, what's happened, and I'll put you in jail for the rest of your exactly. life. <laughs> it's not like you've got a house to sell or yeah. whatever. So it's uh, it's in, interesting, and I've seen some great interviewers and uh, some people that uh, yeah, I I, I learnt from. I'd be sitting in the interview room and I felt like confessing <laughs> and I hadn't even done the crime, but they just had that way with words and could yeah. communicate. And I think that was uh, that was important. Is it on the job? Le- I can imagine it's on the job learning, isn't it, with with interviewing someone? Yeah, I, I, I take it a little bit, that most definitely, but people have got to have the skills mm. in the first place. Now, what what is that skill? Is it intuition? It's not sort of, oh, yeah, a, a vibe, but it's being able to communicate read and listen to what people are saying because I've had- And what they don't say. And what they don't say because that can be very telling mm-hmm. telling too. Just the way that people will react when you ask them a certain thing. Sometimes I'd throw questions in just like a litmus test to see how they react and go, okay, that, that's telling me something. But you've got to, uh, you can go in there with a game plan, but you've got to be flexible in your thinking mm-hmm. as well. But uh, yeah, interviewing, it's stressful, but uh, fun. How, and, how can you tell when someone's lying? Uh, there, there's many ways and people go, oh, you're a cop. You must be able to tell when someone's lying. If you start telling me a story now about what you did last night and let's say the offence occurred at 11, a. Uh, 11 p.m. Mm. and you told me in detail everything up to 10.45 p.m. Mm. and then all of a sudden you go a little bit vague and then at midnight you can remember, oh, then this, this and this. Little things like that, the way they tell their story, like, I'll ask you a question that's not going to get you into trouble and you'll be very definite. Then I ask you a question that's going to the heart of the matter. It might be, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. 
And body language changes. Body language and also the the wording. If you listen to the wording, that uh, uh, might have been uh, might have been six o'clock. I'm not sure. Whereas if you're really confident, as in you know you haven't done anything wrong, no, it was uh, it was six o'clock. Little things like that. But I I caution that. You Someone could be a really good liar. You, you, some can be a good liar and sometimes you can misread it. Sometimes they're just intimidated. So you've got to make sure whatever you come out with the inter- from the interview room is mm. overlaid with the facts of, of the matter. So you've got to be careful careful about did, that. Did you use psychics? No. And I, I'll, I'll say this, and it, it, it doesn't make me popular with the psychics, but if they are true psychics, they know this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> go on. Um, I have never seen or heard of a case that's been solved by by a psychic and you know I'm always there to be prove, proven wrong but I've had uh, people contact me and uh, why I, I speak strongly on it is that I think with some of the high profile cases I've had like William Tyrrell and the bearable ones psychics prey on the the people looking for missing uh, their Vulnerable. missing loved ones and I don't like that that's real exploitation and I've I've seen it time and time again and strangely enough the higher the profile of the case the more psychics that come out um I was at a symposium unsolved homicide symposium and I think there was someone from uh, the FBI or Scotland Yard and talking about that. And he said, uh, you know, and so this is, he, he'd done a study on it and uh, it was something along the lines of, show me a psychic that knows where the body is and I'll show you the person responsible for putting the body there. Like <laughs> basically calling, calling bullshit on it that it just doesn't work. So, yeah, that's, people are going to come back and go, oh, you know, you've got to open your mind to it. I open my mind up to a lo- lot of things. I can only say I've never seen any proof whatsoever that a psychic can help solve a case. And I've had psychics tell me I helped solve this case, that case, and I check with the uh, police and they've had no involvement in it. Amazing. That's really disappointing because I like psychics. Yeah. I I have a good one. I I, I, I like the little bit out there stuff, but I've got to talk on a practical sense and it's just it's too – like it's all right to say I'm a psychic and I'm going to say, okay – in the next 10 years, you're going to meet your perfect partner or all this. That's not as damaging saying. His body's under yeah. a, a tree. And, and yeah. I've I've helped family search just for the sake of, of uh, helping them, um, you know, take the pain away from the fact that uh, a psychic has said the body could be there. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've helped them search that area, knowing full well there's no basis for the search, but just to put the um, parents' mind at ease that uh, it, it has, been, uh, has been searched. Gary, you've got two children, they're grown yep. up now, but when they were growing up, you were dealing with the worst of the worst and, and you know, trying to solve murders of children. How did that change you as a father? And how did that not make you so protective that you wouldn't let them out of your sight? Yeah, you you do become a little bit um, hypervigilant, I think would probably be the, the proper term for it, that you, you're looking for danger uh, everywhere. You've got to check yourself. And I, I think if you've been in the police, you realise that, yes, there is risk, but if you balance it out, well, it doesn't happen all the time and, and you've got to be reasonable because otherwise you don't want um, your kids to be you know, under under lock and key and you've got to give them the freedom to get their you know, cuts, and, cuts and bruises so you can't uh, you know, uh, watch over them too much. You've got to let them go out. I always uh, – Hated when they were teenagers, and it might sound uh, sound strange that uh, 
I was more worried about my son coming into the city uh, than my daughter. I was obviously worried, you know, when they come in the first time when they, you know, they're just old enough to drink or whatever, going into the city to, uh, you know, experience the world. I saw a lot of damage with just young young blokes on alcohol fueled, and it's just those one punch type mm-hmm. situations. That was that, terrible. Uh, that one in Kings Cross. Uh, yeah. it was, and uh, the parents for that, the work that they've done since uh, since that death, but they're the type of things that uh, cause made me worry when they were going out. And you see how fragile I think how fragile life is too as a homicide detective that someone could be just stabbed once and uh, they, they could die. And then you see these gangsters that are shot 20, <laughs> 20 times. And I know. They, well, yeah, exactly. They rise like Frankenstein. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah. Do you think that when, you, when your time's up, your time's up though, are you quite spiritual? I think you. It, it makes you think about it. Like, you, where did that life go? What What is life after death, and and all that? And there is definitely, and you hear people talk about when someone's died, and I've I've seen people die, and uh, something leaves their body. I was going to ask you, do you believe that? Do you see that? Yeah, you yeah. you see it. There's something about it, and this is just my opinion. But when I'm I'm looking at the body, the life is not in that that body. And so it, it gives you a, a sort of understanding about death and uh, thinking, okay, well, that's the physical being. Where's the other part gone? Where do you think it's gone? You're going to get me into a philosophical God, discussion. I love I, it. I'm fascinated okay, by the afterlife. This is just based on, based on nothing. But, based you know, on the fact you've seen heaps of dead bodies. Well, I've seen heaps of dead bodies, but uh, I'm certainly no, no expert. But uh, afterlife, I'm, I'm not a religious person. And, uh, yeah, well, that's just my thing. If, you, if you're religious, fine. If that's what, uh, what works for you, very good. Do we all go to heaven? Do we all have this? I reckon – the spirit that's left is the people that you know. Your spirit lives on. I think that is the afterlife. The impact that you've had when you've been on in this physical form, that's the afterlife. Once once you die, what's your spirit? Your spirit is all the people that you've met. That's mm. what passes on. And I think that might be, um, yeah, that's my interpretation of what the afterlife is. It's the spirit that you leave behind with the people that you've uh, yeah, come it's into contact with. a beautiful way of looking at it. Do you worry about dying? No. <laughs> No, I've, I, I don't know why. <laughs> some, uh, some of the things, and I've never, uh, choose my words carefully here. I've never been suicidal, but no, I'm, I'm fatalistic on, uh, yeah. If I, if I died tomorrow, I'd look at my life and I'd high five and go, well, uh, it's been interesting. So I, I look at it, look at it that way. Having said that, I don't want to die, <laughs> and I would. Oh, well, it's not jinx it. Don't <laughs> yeah, I would fight tooth and nail not to die. Yeah, but um. So yeah. you're not scared of dying? Have I, you seen I'm, death so many times? I, I'm not. I'm not scared of dying, mm. and uh, I, I think it would. I, I don't want to have to go through life worrying about. There's enough things to worry about that are likely to happen. You know, you're going to die. It's certain it's going to happen. So just enjoy yourself when you're here. If if anything, I, I'm I'm trying to become more philosophical about that. Enjoying because I I would lose years or you know decades in the police on different cases. You know, you're just thrown in and I look back and go, where's that gone? And so now I, I'm really trying to live that way of just enjoying every day and make make the most of it. Hmm. Gary, that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you very much. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I, it's I'm, always, I'm so fascinated by you. <laughs> 
I, I well, that's that's very very nice of you to say. Thank <laughs> thank you for that. But uh, no, I've enjoyed it, and thanks for having having me on. And good thank luck you. with uh, all your uh, future endeavours. Well, good luck with yours. I have to yeah. come to prison with you one day. Get myself a bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> there's plenty in there. Actually, I just go to the cops and get one. Yeah, there's, there's plenty <laughs> there too. Thanks for listening to Exposed. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more to come. Episodes are released fortnightly, and hit follow so you don't miss out. And for more goodness from your host, visit the show notes.